Hello, and thank you for listening to part two of the pilot for the She Speaks Volumes podcast, the primer for feminist writings of the past 500 years. Part one of the podcast is an excerpt from A Room of One's Own, and if you have not read the book, or if you have not read the book in a long time, you can listen to that to familiarize yourself with it, either before or after listening to part two. In this segment, I'm speaking with Brooke Warner, the publisher of She Writes Press and the author of Write On Sisters. Links to both and to Brooke's website will be in the show notes. As this is my very first podcast, and Brooke was my very first interview, I just asked a few questions, and I focused on women's writers and equality in the business of publishing. Before speaking with Brooke, I want to highlight some of the themes in a room of one's own. If you agree with me or disagree, I want to hear from you either way, through the She Speaks Volumes Facebook page or through the website shespeaksvolumes.ca. The central thesis of A Room of One's Own is that women must have money and A Room of One's Own in order to write fiction. That has been contested numerous times by women writers, particularly women of color and working class women that have had neither. It is said that Jane Austen wrote all her novels from a small table in one of the common rooms of the home. But I think though that Virginia Woolf is right. A woman may of course be able to write in any number of circumstances. But I believe the ideal is the option of a private space, and enough money that she does not have to spend her valuable time worrying where her next meal is coming from, or how she will pay rent. I think what's more important about it is not the specifics of having money and a room of one's own, it's the merit or the deserving of that space, the deserving of those resources. In 1929, I imagine access to a private space, and certainly control of money, was a much bigger issue than it is today. I still know, though, of couples in which he has a den, a workshop, or a man cave, and she makes do using the dining room table when it's not being used for meals. It isn't the individual examples that are the issue so much as who is entitled to what. If the natural assumption is that he needs a space for his work, but she can make do, well, that's an issue. Access to money is, of course, not just a private problem, a social problem with wealth distribution. These days, 500 a week doesn't cover the bare necessities, at least here in Vancouver. Wolf also defines the dichotomy between how women are written about and how they are treated in reality. In books, they are idolized, often sexualized, and in reality, they are still too frequently flung about the room. Virginia Woolf dreams up the aspiring playwright, poet, and actor Judith Shakespeare, and provides a theory on how Judith may have fared as compared to her brother. This thought experiment is still relevant with women today. There is still the subtle undercurrent that women are not natural leaders, that they are not groundbreaking revolutionary thinkers, that the work of women is qualified by the fact that it was done by a woman. In the passage, Virginia Woolf writes, as Judith stands outside the stage door, hoping for an opportunity to work in the theater, that she is not taken seriously, that she is laughed at. The stage manager hints. And even though Wolf leaves this unspoken, we know, we still know what the stage manager hints at. This has not changed. The objectification of women, that women are seen sexually first, was the impetus behind the Me Too movement. And I think it's important to ask why. Why are women objectified? What ideology are we dragging around with us that reduces half the population to tits and ass? 
This is an issue that Brooke Warner delves into in Right On Sisters and touches on in her TED Talk, The Greenlight Revolution, which I highly recommend you watch, particularly if you are a musician, a writer, a filmmaker, or a media creator of any sort. The link is, of course, in the show notes. In her book, Right On Sisters, Warner cites a 2017 Pew Research study on what we value in women and men. At the top of the list for men is honesty and morality, and for women, it is physical attractiveness. Her book, Write On Sisters, is an inspirational guide for writers, a woman's perspective on the publishing industry, and a historical review of women writers. All right. Um, so, Brooke Warner, thank you so much for being my very first guest on my very first podcast. I so appreciate you taking the time. Oh my gosh, what a privilege. Thank you for having me. Um, what makes A Room of One's Own an important text to read? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's one of those classic texts that everyone should read. I mean, it would be awesome if all women and men and any, you know, uh, non-gender conforming person as well would read it. But I do think it's particularly important for women to see the context of the world that Virginia Woolf was writing in and how much actually hasn't changed in the, I think it's about a hundred years um, since that book was originally written. And for me, it was just a very eye-opening text for situating women among their male counterparts and really showcasing, I mean, even though it's a novel, of course, it was speaking to her experience of the time, you know, like she couldn't even walk on the path. You know, she couldn't go into the library and look at books or check out books. And, and so all of these barriers to entry that existed for women and the extent to which that undoubtedly had a, an impact on how women were able to contribute in a literary way to the society, right? So I think just placing into historical context all of that and then going, oh my gosh, that was about a hundred years ago is a is pretty shocking because that's like three generations, right? I mean, it's essentially my grandparents' generation. <laughs> and so we're just not that far removed. And so on the one hand, I think it help gives us some pause to say, wow, that was not that long ago and and women really had a lot of limitations. And then on the other hand to say in other, you know, on the flip side, well, we have come a long way. I mean, that's sort of the slogan of the, of the women's rights movement. And sometimes I think that's true. And sometimes I think it's not, but when you read a room of one zone, I think you can, you can argue that case. Um, have women achieved equality in writing and publishing? Definitely not. <laughs> you know, I think, there is not equality. I, I think that one of the things that is coming up for me a lot recently, even just this year with all of the things that are happening in our world around racial inequity is the unconscious bias that is there. You know, I've been guilty of it. I think until you're 
eyes are open, you don't see all the things that you don't see, you don't know. And so I think you can look around at something comparable, like women's achievements in publishing and go, oh, well, lots of women are writing and lots of women are publishing. And so therefore, it's equal, you know, maybe more women even are writing and publishing than men. But you have to look at things like advances and who wins awards and who's achieving the greatest amount of accolades and in what ways are men's books taken more seriously than women's books and how, I mean, I write about this in my book, Write on Sisters, but how are women steered toward writing lighter content, fluffier content, less serious content, women who maybe are in journalism and they can't get the more serious beats because they are given to men instead for, again, unconscious biases sometimes, right? So I don't think it's always that um, I, that the publishing houses are even consciously trying to elevate men over women, but that is historically the case. And I think it is still the case. And as much awareness as there is right now, um, you know, I think it's definitely getting better, but we're not at parity. What about readers too? Like, it seems to me that, um, it seems to me that some writers, like you t- take Salman Rushdie and it's like, everybody reads Salman Rushdie, but take Margaret Atwood and it's like, oh, those are women's books. Still, <laughs> right. I mean, Margaret Atwood, right? <laughs> totally. And you're speaking to that idea that men's books are for everyone and women's books are for women. And that is kind of a publishing truism. People are not saying that, but men's books are marketed toward everyone. You know, oh my gosh, this is the must read book. It's, you know, this, that, and the other with regard to its accolades and its claims. And if you're a learned person, you should read this author, you know, and still that's true for education as well, right? I mean, I think one of the biggest uh, issues that's coming up around education is that the the canon of literature that we read, that we have our students read is largely white men. And so, and then if you look at women's books, they're marketed toward women. There is no such thing as a men's fiction category, but women's fiction is absolutely a category and women's books have women on the cover and they have, you know, pretty colors and they're very much designed to appeal to women. They're not designed to appeal to women and men, which is how the the book jackets of men's fiction, they're gender neutral, right? And so it's it's very insidious and very complicated. And, you know, even as a publisher of a women's press, I see how I'm complicit in that because some of the books that we publish that are women's fiction, they have, you know, pink covers and, you know, beautiful women. And I can imagine a man picking that up and being like, well, this isn't for me. You know, this doesn't look like something that I would want to be like reading on the subway, you know? So I think the hard thing is that the industry perpetuates itself, even well-intentioned and well-meaning people. And, um, you know, I, I don't know how we address that change other than talking about it and making real efforts to move the needle, um, you know, just in terms of starting from really young, starting from kids reading women on the same level that they read uh, male authors. Um. Yeah, the, one of the points you made there uh, in terms of the sort of books that are that 
make up our education system. I find that that, I really feel that that builds a huge bias in our culture towards here's real books by real people. And this is real literature. And then everything else is like, not, you know, like if, if the books were, that we study in school, the ideology of that becomes how we operate in the world, then we're sadly missing out on a whole perspective of, of um, women's writing. Yeah, totally. And then it gets relegated to like women's lit classes, you know, which I took in college as an elective. And that was where I was introduced to Zora Neale Hurston and Toni Morrison, you know, and then they, you know, those like, I never read any of these amazing authors in high school. And, 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 you know, the only reason I took a women lit class was because I was interested in reading and books. And so it was hardly a universal experience that people were going to have to be exposed to other kinds of authors. And so you can say, you know, real, and I totally agree with you. And it's like anything that is not, you know, important is marginalized. And so, and then that's what we have going where I think, you know, when you say, well, are women moving the needle, you know, or is there more representation? Yes, totally. There's more representation, but it's still on the margins, you know, because those books that are the important books, you know, those authors who are, uh, you know, the ones that are getting the most amount of attention and sort of lining themselves up uh, to be the modern literary canon still are largely white and male. Now that said, not exclusively, you know I mean? I think we're seeing more and more definitely women and writers of color. And I think we're in a very important moment to be seeing massive amounts of uh, agency on the part of readers to be reading writers that are not white men. Uh, and, and I think that momentum will change. I, I really do think that this is a tipping point moment, but it's something that has been a conversation in publishing that publishing has just kind of given lip service to for probably the past three decades. And so now in this moment, I, I think it's going to go past lip service and into a, a different world. I think that will happen. Has the internet really changed that for authors? Like I would imagine, I would hope and imagine that it's made um, a lot more diversity in writers available to a wider audience. I think the thing that the internet does is it, it makes publishers not be able to deny the popularity of certain, you know, quote unquote, otherwise marginalized writers, right? Like you can't look at um, Rupi Carr, for instance, and just be like, oh, you're some random poet when you have millions and millions of Instagram followers for your poetry, right? Yeah. So I think that's the difference is like, it, there is a proven readership, a proven audience. And a lot of times publishers downfall is that they can't see the audience because they don't really know who the audience is. And this is especially true when you're talking about writers of color. They'll say like, oh, well, you know, we don't know how to reach that audience, which just means they don't know how to market to who they think the readership is going to be. They don't even know, right? I mean, it's just this very weird euphemisms and way of talking because who's to say, you know, that the author of the next best-selling, um, you know, book that happens to have Black characters, that her book is only for Black women. It's not, right? It's for white women. It's for white men. It's for everyone. Again, this everyone versus, and, and so you see that happening where, um, you know, the, the publisher is complicit in, or, or actually 
at fault, <laughs> I should say, for narrowing the audience. And so the internet, of course, can showcase like the audience is way bigger than you might imagine. Yeah, because being giving access is really providing a voice, right? And it's providing legitimacy to a to a more like to, to non-writers or to like to readers, right? You see these people represented and it becomes part of the fabric of our culture. And without it, we don't have that. It's not that rich, right? We're, we all lose. Right. It. And that is absolutely why I'm uh, such an advocate for indie publishing, because I think that independent publishing will take greater risks and independent publishing has the capacity to give voice to those who maybe are not getting deals with the big publishers for all kinds of reasons. And it's the, and when I say indie, it encompasses everything, right. But uh, including self-publishing, including small presses. And what I love about this moment in book publishing is that people who are not getting picked up traditionally, and they feel that they have an important message or an important voice can contribute to the landscape. And I do think that it's creates a more culturally rich environment. Um, so the uh, one of the themes for this podcast series, and I hope to examine it in each episode, is how things might be different today had women not been denied an education or participation in the public sphere. Um, how do you think this has been affected in publishing, say? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And it go certainly goes back to, you know, full circle to Room of One's Own, because if you're looking at the premise of that book is basically not only that a woman needs a room of her own in order to write, but also that she needs privacy. I mean, it, the privacy is the room, right? But also that she needs means. She needs money. And so if you look back to, you're talking about denied education, but also denied property, denied the right to make her own choices, to spend her money the way that she wanted to spend her money. I see that playing out today where a lot of my authors, I publish only women and they will say things like, okay, fine. You have to check with your husband. I totally get that. You know, you're, it's a, it's a, it's okay to have a conversation about how you're going to spend your money. But a lot of times I wonder, is the man checking in with his wife about the expenses that he wants to do? You know, like, is this a two way street for this family? And sometimes the way that women talk about it, it does feel very much like, oh, I have to get permission from my husband. And so the, I think that these questions really resound today in terms of who holds the purse strings. Um, and so when you think about like, if women were in the position of power, if women were the ones with the historical legacy of education and access and, and power, I, I think it's a really important question. And it reminds me of um, the book called Power. Uh, I don't know if you read that book. The author's first name is Naomi. Um, anyway, she's a bit of a, a science fiction writer, but she reimagined the world. What would happen if women had the physical power, you know? And, and so the whole thing is a thought experiment also about actual physical power and what would women do and how would they behave? And I think it's a similar question. It's like her, her thesis or the point of the novel essentially goes on to say, it's not that they would behave better. You know, it's not that having the power just because you're female means that you're going to use it for productive ends. You know, it's like whoever has the power wins. <laughs> and and so it's a super interesting experiment. You know, would would women then be in the position of having to 
yield a bit to make more space for men, you know, and whoever's in power, they're loath to turn over the reins of power because it puts you in a one down position. And so I think it would be very interesting to imagine a world like what would it look like if women had the one up position? Um, and then what would we be doing? You know, how would we be reacting to men who want their equal due or, you know, any of the other conversations that we're grappling with? Um, so obviously, you know, it's the subject of one novel. I think it could be the subject of many novels. <laughs> Um, there's a there's a a great story in in your book, um, right on sister about in the in chapter, the women and money mm-hmm. about the about the Ducati. That right. You of, I, I thought it was such a a great, a, it was such a great little interplay because you could see how this could all unfold. Right, this guy goes out and buys his Ducati. You know, and it's like, well, I want to publish my book. <laughs> a waste a waste of money. And his whole thing was about the return on investment, right? Yeah, like yeah no the ROI. On, um, on your book. And then when he bought the Ducati, she was like, and what's the ROI on your Ducati? And it was this light bulb moment. And I agree. I think it's a very cute story and very illustrative of the double standard, you know, and, and women also being reluctant to spend the money. You know, I'm really make a point to try to talk about people legitimately do not have money to spend on publishing, right? I I was mindful of that conversation. But for the women who do have the money to be thinking about how they apologize for it, how they demean their hobby, you know, I put hobby in air quotes, uh, by feeling like it's not worthy, worthy or worthwhile if they spend money on it. And, um, and, and I think it's a very important conversation, you know, about self-worth, worthiness, legitimacy, and all of these things, of course, come up when you're talking about spending money on yourself to promote your career, to maybe publish a book, to get yourself out there in a meaningful way, because for most authors, that doesn't happen for free. Yeah. And that, uh, that worthiness, I think, is definitely, for, for me, one of the impacts that we're seeing. One of the things that we're grappling with today, happily, that has been the impact of being left out of the public sphere for so long is that we're trying to find our sea legs in a, in a, in a way on equal footing. Right to be able to say, and like, if if there's no history, if there's no backlog of of context for it, then we have to make it up, right? Yeah, Which- and I think it's one of the really important things is that women find power on their own terms because I think one of the biggest mistakes that came out of second wave feminism was that women were trying to have male power, yeah. you know, and so they were going, okay, well, here's our paradigm for power. So if we just do power the way men get power, and then we'll rest equal power, and then everything is going to be fine and equal. And totally not, you know, it's like that yeah. did not work. And I think the best thing that we're, I feel that we're seeing, you know, certainly now in some spheres, but we're not there yet, obviously, is women defining power on more female and feminine terms. And there's obviously like many role models in the culture for that. Uh, and I, I think that's refreshing. You know, I think that women really, you know, we are so inherently powerful and we don't need to do our power the same way men do power. I know. And I think that's definitely one of the really exciting things that I see in the movement that seems to be um, growing now is this embracing of power differently. 
right? In this, you know, very much trying to look at and examine what a feminine power looks like. Yeah. And I hope that we'll continue with that. You know, I, I think that having a female vice president and, you know, just all of the move of having all the women who came into Congress in 2018, yeah. you know, all of these things that are shifting and, and it does, it creates representation for the younger generation too, of being like, oh, it's very normal to see women in politics. It's very normal to see, you know, X, Y, Z. And, you know, of course, unfortunately, because we're living in the middle of a backlash right now, you can see that it swings, you know, but I, I do hold a lot of hope for feminine power <laughs> as we move into the, into past 2020. Well, thank you very, very much for your time and for, and for joining me as here. Oh, thanks, Daniela. Really lovely to be with you. In 1928, when Virginia Woolf wrote A Room of One's Own, books and the written word were still the most dominant form of media. Today, video, images, and audio are the most prevalent media we have. Not just prevalent, but we are fully media-saturated. Magazines, television, billboards, mobile technologies, the internet, and social media contextualize our world for us. It is often challenging to see the form the messages are taking with the sheer volume of highly stylized messages we receive. It isn't anyone's job to ensure that we are exposed to a diverse selection of ideas and perspectives. We must do that for ourselves. We also need to consider for ourselves who is being represented and in what context. If Virginia Woolf was to browse the shelves of a bookshop today, I think she would be pleased with the number of published women authors, though she may lament the lack of bricks-and-mortar bookstores. Thank you for listening to my first-ever podcast and the pilot for She Speaks Volumes. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in Apple Podcasts, as that will help more like-minded listeners to find it. To learn more about Virginia Woolf and A Room of One's Own, as well as the other writers in Series 1, please visit shespeaksvolumes.ca and join the Facebook page to participate in the conversation about the books throughout the series. If you are interested in hearing more from Virginia Woolf, I will be covering Three Guineas in the November the 26th episode. An audiobook of Three Guineas will be available for free on the website by the end of September. Mm -hmm.